0: Well, take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to the book of Philemon in your New Testament. It's near the end of your Bible, very difficult to find because it's just one page. But if you'll find the book of Hebrews and take a left, there it will be. Before we jump into our scripture focus this morning, if I can, I would like to just sort of talk about our church for a moment or two. Uh, we are about a month away from Easter. About five weeks, if you'll remember back one year, we were unable to come together as a church family and celebrate Easter. I'm certain that's the only time that's happened in the history of First Baptist Nacogdoches. That is absolutely unprecedented. And while I'm I'm trusting that everybody worshiped and celebrated the resurrection in their homes with their family, viewing with us online. It's just not the same, right? And so this Easter, Resurrection Day, the first Sunday of April, I believe is going to be uh, just a a great day. And I hope that even now that you are praying, that you are uh, just spiritually preparing for that day. We'll be talking about it in the in the next few weeks as it gets closer and closer. And let's have a celebration this Easter uh, like we've never had before. Let's make up for last Easter and celebrate the Lord. And we'll talk about it every week between now and then because I think it's just that significant. Uh, I I believe the Lord is leading me to preach a series of messages on Christ as our prophet, priest, and king. Uh, The Bible in the Old Testament tells us that there were three important offices that God had instituted in order to, well, to lead the people, but also to point to Christ. Uh, There were prophets, uh, but the perfect prophet was Jesus, right? There were priests, but the perfect priest was Jesus. There were kings, but the perfect king is Jesus. And so we're going to begin with a message on Jesus as the perfect prophet, and then the Sunday before Easter, Palm Sunday, we'll focus on Jesus as the perfect priest, and we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together, and then on Easter, we'll talk about Jesus as the King, and uh, I just hope that there will be this anticipation that'll build from today until Easter for that special time of worship. Uh, Already mentioned Hispanic ministry, I think, in both services this morning. Uh, I I know that you'll continue to be praying for that. And I want to encourage everybody in the church to find a way to be a part of all of these things. You know, this last year, these last 12 months have been really, it's been one of the best years in our church. Even in the midst of the pandemic, so many good things have happened. And we need you to be a part of that, and you need you to be a part of that. It's important for us and the work that we're doing for the Lord, but it's also important for you and your spiritual growth to be involved in these things. In fact, we have said over and over that when the Bible describes a person who is a fully devoted follower of Christ, it always says that four things are true of him. Four things are true of her. First of all, that person loves God, has a passion for God and his word, to worship God, to live for God, love God, love people, serve the body, and serve the world. So to love people, the Bible says that the Christian faith is not to be done alone, but we ought to be connected with other Christians that we're serving and praying for, and they're praying for us, and we're talking about the Bible and what we're learning in the Bible. We ought to be loving people. We ought to be serving through the local body of Christ. Everybody should be serving in the church. And then, of course, serving the world. We're all to be a part of carrying the gospel all around the world. And whether we're giving, we're praying, or we're going, everybody can be a part of that. So those are the four things. It's not that one is more important than the other or even that one comes before the other, but all four things, love God, love people, serve the body, serve the world. That's what it means to be a fully devoted follower of Christ. And I want to tell you how, on number two and number three, how we can help you with that Today. If you go to the Welcome Center at the conclusion of the service, whether you're here in the celebration service or you're in the summit service, if you go to the Welcome Center, you're going to see two large screens. And they're on the western wall, no pun intended, but one of the screens will say groups and the other screen will say teams. Now in front of the screen that says groups, there is an expert on all of the groups in our church. And the same thing with teams. There's an expert there on all the different ministry teams in our church. Everybody should be in a group and on a team. Can you remember that? In a group, on a team. And when we talk about groups, we're mostly talking about Sunday school. People could be in a Bible study class on Sunday morning. There are some other opportunities through the week, but everybody ought to be in a group and everybody ought to be on a team rolling up their sleeves and serving the Lord. So if you would like to be in a group or on a team, uh, you stop by this afternoon when church uh, uh, lets out and you talk to one of those experts and they'll help you get plugged in. And from... From this point through the end of 2021, every time we meet on Sunday, there will be those two screens and those experts out there to help you get plugged in, and I hope you'll take advantage of that. Well, today we're focused in the little book of Philemon, the last uh, book that we know was written by the Apostle Paul in our Bibles, Uh, very short, 335 words, probably just one page in your Bible, Uh, difficult to find. It's really just a postscript to the book of Colossians, something that that people are much more familiar with. And so when Paul wrote the letter to the church at Colossae, when he was the uh, prisoner in Rome and sent that letter, this was sent as an addendum to the letter, a private part of the letter, to a man by the name of Philemon. Now, we see a number of things in this short book, but what I want you to see this morning is something about the power of the gospel. Philemon highlights just how powerful, just how wonderful is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now everybody hears my voice for the most part, You could explain the gospel, couldn't you? If somebody asked you, what is the gospel of Jesus Christ, you could tell them. The gospel is simply the fact that every person, because of his sin, is separated from the Father. I'm a sinner and you're a sinner and there's nothing I can do to ever change that status. Even if I lived a perfect sinless life from this point forward, it is still true that I've been guilty of sin in the past and I'm separated from God. I am hopeless in my sin. Yet Jesus, the Son of God, came and lived a perfect life and then died on the cross to pay my penalty for sin so that because of what Christ has done, my sin can be forgiven and I can be right with the father. If I put my faith and trust in what Jesus has done, I turn from my sin and surrender to him. The Bible says I'll be adopted forever and ever into the family of God. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now you knew that. That's, that's probably not revelation to anybody that's listening. But what people don't know is just the power of the gospel. That the gospel is not just how you get a right relationship with the Father. It's not just how you become a part of this family. But the gospel, it impacts every part of of the Christian life. The gospel impacts how we conduct our marriage. The gospel changes how we rear our children. The gospel impacts how we approach retirement, how we fight depression and anxiety, how we approach our job or our career, how we fix a broken relationship how we make societal or political change, how we face our own deaths or grieve the deaths of other people, how we handle addictive behaviors, anger management, everything is impacted by the gospel. And that's what I want you to see today. So we'll look at this little, little read, seldom read book, the book of Philemon. We'll read nearly the entire book this morning. It's just 25 verses if we read them all. Uh, and perhaps the story is familiar to you, perhaps it's not, but it's interesting either way. So Philemon verse 1 says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and coworker, uh, to Aphia, our sister, that's probably Philemon's wife, uh, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, that may be Philemon's son, we're not sure, And to the church that meets in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is writing this. He is in prison in Rome. Maybe house arrest, we're not real sure. But he's a prisoner and he sends this letter along with the letter uh, that we call the book of Colossians. He sends it to a man by the name of Philemon who was a wealthy uh, Roman who lived there in Colossae and who was a member of the church that we call the church at, at Colossae. And so, Paul previously on a missionary journey, uh, perhaps in Ephesus, had led Philemon to know the Lord. Paul had shared the gospel with Philemon, and Philemon had embraced it, and his life was changed. And so, that's their relationship. So, he writes this letter. Look at, well, let's skip down to verse 8. He says, for this reason, although I have great boldness in Christ to command you to do what is right, I appeal to you instead on the basis of love, I, Paul, as an elderly man and now also as a prisoner of Jesus. So Paul is about to ask Onesimus, I'm sorry, Philemon, I get these names mixed up, Paul's going to ask Philemon to do something. Now what's important to see here, we still don't know what he's going to ask, we'll see that a few verses down. But Paul says, I could command you to do this. What I'm going to say, Philemon, it's the right thing to do, and I could just insist. But instead of insisting, I appeal to you on the basis of love. I love and care about you. You love and care about me. Together, we love the Lord. That's the basis that Paul comes to Philemon. Uh, It's interesting. Uh, I looked back to see when I had or if I had preached on the book of Philemon before, and I have. About 12 years ago, it was 2009, I preached three messages in a row on Philemon. And when, when I'm preaching, when I'm preparing to preach, I, I ordinarily don't just go back and preach what I've preached before. It usually comes out sort of funky if I try to do that. Uh, so, so generally, with, with some exceptions, when I preach, it's a, it's a new message that uh, that I have prepared to preach. But after I've Sort to get the message outlined, I go back and see what I have preached before. And so I went back and I looked at these three messages. And all three messages, it was a series on Philemon, all three messages were about how to have godly relationships, principles for having godly relationships, how to get along with other people. And there are a number of them in this book. And that's not the focus of today's message, but you see the first one right here in verse eight and verse nine. And I would just commend to you the study of relationships from Philemon. If you want to know how to have godly relationships, uh, you'll probably find some some help, some wisdom in the book of Philemon. So Paul says, Philemon, I've got something to ask of you. I'm not going to command it. Uh, we're, We're brothers. We love each other. And so I'm just going to appeal to you on that basis. Look at verse 10. He says, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus. I became his father while I was in chains. Now, let's stop there. That seems odd. He brings up a new name, Onesimus. And he says, I, Paul, am Onesimus's father. Now, what do you mean by that? He means not that Onesimus is a biological child, but that Paul had led Onesimus to the Lord. He had shared the gospel with him. Paul was a prisoner in Rome. Somehow, Onesimus, maybe he was a one of the wardens in the prison, he was assigned to go and check on Paul. He does that. Paul says, I've got good news for you, shares the gospel. Onesimus is is saved. And so Paul says, Onesimus is my child because Onesimus was born again under the influence of Paul's, Paul's ministry. Look at verse 11. Once he was useless to you, but now he is useful both to you and to me. So that points to the fact that there was a problem between Philemon and Onesimus. We'll see more about it in a moment. Verse 12, I am sending him back to you. I am sending my very own heart. Paul says, I'm sending Onesimus to you, but it breaks my heart to do so. I care so much about this man. Verse 13, I wanted to keep him with me so that in my imprisonment for the gospel he might serve me in your place. Now we still don't know what's the deal, why. What's the deal between Onesimus and Philemon, and why is he sending him back? But we see here that Paul says, Philemon, you're not here to serve me because, by the way, Colossae was about 1,200 miles away, which was a long way in in those days. And there wasn't uh, an easy way to get from Rome to Colossae. Uh, But he says, I'm sending him back because I want you to make a decision about this situation. We'll see what the situation is in a moment. Look at verse 15 for perhaps this is why he was separated from you for a brief time So that you might get him back permanently Now again, we don't know the situation just gotta its building a little suspense here But verse 15 he points to the providence of god. We're going to come back to that It's one of the most important verses verse 16. Here it is no longer as a slave But more than a slave, as a dearly loved brother, he is especially so to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? Here's the situation. Onesimus was a slave. In Colossae, a slave of Philemon. Philemon was his master. And so for some reason, and we don't know the details, Onesimus decides to flee, uh, being a slave to Philemon, and he runs away. Now, this would have been a crime. Uh, this would have been punishable, really, by death if Philemon had pressed the point. There's some indication here that maybe even more than fleeing, he may have stolen some stuff along the way. We, we don't know that for sure, but there's some, some indication of that here. And so he has, uh, Onesimus has run away. Now, now, think about this, and we're going to talk about the odds of this in a moment, Onesimus runs away from Philemon, 1,200 miles, ends up in Rome, talks to this man by Paul, Paul uh, by the name of Paul. Paul shares the gospel, and Philemon follows Christ, and, and then Philemon says, you know, it's interesting that I'm a Christian because I ran away from a Christian a few months ago uh, in some other part of the world. And Paul said, well, huh? that's interesting. I wonder who it was. And he said, well, nobody you'd ever know. It's in a little city called Colossae. His name was Philemon. And Paul said, Philemon, that's one of my best friends. And so we'll see why that's important in a moment. Look at verse 20. Um, I'm sorry, verse 17. Paul says, "So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would me, and if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it, not to mention to you that you owe me even yourself." So Paul, as we've already said, has, through his ministry, Uh, one Onesimus to Christ and Philemon to Christ. And so really in a sense, both of them owe Paul their lives. Verse 21, since I am confident of your obedience, I am writing to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. Paul had confidence that That Philemon would do the right thing because Paul knew that people who are genuine Christians, that changes the way we live. We live differently than other people. And so Paul had this high expectation. And then, verse 22 Meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, since I hope that through your prayers I will be restored to you. Now, what we have here is the story, a story of the power of the gospel. The gospel changed the relationship between Onesimus and Philemon. The gospel changed Philemon's life. It changed Onesimus' life. This is all about the power of the gospel. And so I want us to focus on that. Before we get to the specific ways the gospel has done such a mighty work here, let me tell you, though, the rest of the story. So the question is, did Philemon do what he was asked to do by the apostle Paul. So here this slave has shown back up. He brings the letter. He hands it to Philemon. Philemon sees the slave probably pretty angry at this slave who has run away and maybe stolen a bunch of Philemon's property in the process. And so he reads this letter and it says from the apostle Paul, you need to treat him like you would treat me. Well, what does that mean? Well, bring him in, treat him, give him the royal treatment. But what's Philemon going to do? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us, but in a sense it does. This was a personal private letter to Philemon. But in the next hundred years, this letter is distributed to churches all over Southern Europe, all over the Middle East. It is read, and the only way that could have happened is if Philemon followed the advice and did exactly what Paul told him to do. If he wasn't going to do it, what would he have done? What would you have done? He'd have tore that letter up. Nobody would have ever seen it again. So the very fact that we have the letter tells us that Philemon did the right thing. Another interesting story. This is not in the Bible. It's tradition. So we can't be certain that it is true. But the second century bishop of Ephesus, his name was Onesimus. And many scholars believe that this is the same person that Philemon so encouraged Onesimus in his faith that he rose up to be one of the greatest leaders in the early church. So a happy ending, all because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, let me go back through this, and I want to show you three things that the gospel does here. And we could talk, talk about the gospel in marriage, and the gospel in anxiety, and the gospel in debt, and, and a lot of things. But three things here that this passage highlights that I want us to focus on. Number one, the gospel uproots chattel slavery. The gospel uproots chattel slavery. Now, we just have to be honest about something here. Here is a man, Philemon, who is a Christian who has a slave. And the apostle Paul commends Philemon, the slave owner, for his strong faith. Now, that's puzzling, right? And it causes us to ask the question, does the Bible here condone slavery? Is this suggesting that you can be a strong Christian and that you can be doing what is right and you can own another person? Is that what it is what it's saying? And sadly, through the years, many people have suggested that it does. In fact, Christian leaders, preachers, scholars through the years, many not all, of course, not most, but some have suggested that this passage and other passages condones slavery. Could that be true? Well, I want you to see in a moment, and I'm going to go through some of the details of this, that that is not true. It is flatly wrong. It is sin for one man to own another man. No qualifications, full stop, no exceptions. It is wrong. But in an attempt to correct this poor theology that said that this condoned slavery, many people have turned one wrong into two wrongs. By then taking the issue of slavery and laying it at the feet of Christians and saying then that it's the fault of Christians that there is slavery in history. So I want us to look at this. I want us to find the answer from scripture. I want us to see the gospel answer to the question, does this passage or other passages in the Bible, is slavery condoned here? So I'm going to give you an answer in three parts. ABC, and I'm sorry this is a little bit complicated, but I I want to make sure I don't leave anything out. Does the gospel condone slavery? What's the gospel answer? ABC, let me tell you. First of all, A, the Bible rightly understood and fully embraced does not condone slavery. Now I've gone back and read what some of these Christian leaders have said uh, in, in generations past when they have tried to say that it condones slavery. And what they've said for the most part is that if you really look to the scripture and you really look to the details of the scripture, you'll find evidence that it condones slavery. Well, the problem was not that these people were taking the Bible too seriously. The problem is that they weren't taking the Bible seriously enough. Because if you look further in the scripture, there's no question, it is crystal clear, and I will show it to you this morning, the Bible does not condone slavery. Now, two parts to that that you need to know to best understand what the Bible says when it references slavery. The first part is that there's a big difference in the Bible between something being descriptive and something being prescriptive. Now, I don't want to get into the weeds with this, but, but, but this is important. Sometimes when the Bible describes something, that's all it's doing. It's just describing something. It's not prescribing it. It's not instructing us to do it. It's just telling us something that happened. You can turn to Genesis chapter 16. There was a man by the name of Abraham, a woman by the name of Sarai. They were married. God had promised that he would do something special through their offspring, but they did not have a baby. Do you know this story? And so Sarai gets the idea that her husband ought to conceive a child with her servant, Hagar. So they bring in this other woman, and sure enough, she gets pregnant, and they've got a son. Now, if you know your Bible history, you know the answer to this question. Did that work out really well? No. In fact, that's where Islam came from, which is another sermon altogether we'll get to one day. But um, it, it was a disaster. But what we read in Genesis 16 that is not prescriptive. That's not suggesting that the way you ought to solve infertility is just bring somebody else into the relationship. It is not giving us instruction, it is simply describing what happened. And so sometimes when you see slavery in the Bible, it's not suggesting it, it is only describing it. Now the second part of that, when we say that the Bible does not embrace or condone slavery, the second thing you need to know is that there's a big difference in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, between a bond servant and a chattel slave. Now, chattel slave, that just simply means some, some person who is property. Chattel property, that means that you own somebody as, and they're your property. Uh, race-based slavery in America, chattel slavery. You, that person... Uh, they were your property and what they produced was yours. And if they had children, those children belonged to you. They were your property. Now, when the Bible talks about slavery, most of the time, it's not talking about that. It's talking about a bondservant. Now, a bond servant would be similar to what we would call an indentured servant, maybe of a few generations ago. It was more of a financial arrangement. A person couldn't pay his or her bills, and so that person would become a servant, an indentured servant to the person that he or she owed money to. Now, I'm not saying that that system is good, but I am saying, to be fair, we have to make a distinction between... What we think of as early American chattel slavery and what we see in the Bible as a debtor's prison kind of arrangement, uh, they're just very different things. However, no question, the Bible always condemns chattel or race-based slavery. Let me give you some verses. Exodus 21, 16. Whoever kidnaps a person must be put to death. If you have somebody that you have gone and gotten, you've purchased them, you have taken them, then that's a sin, and a sin of the worst kind. One person cannot own another person. In 1 Timothy, New Testament, uh, chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, it lists the worst kinds of sinners. Who are the worst kind of sinners? It says those who kill their fathers and mothers, uh, murderers, sexually immoral, males who have sex with males, and slave traders, slave traders. Slave traders. Uh, and then, of course, the verse that just trumps all other verses, Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine: 39, love your neighbor as yourself. Slavery is always condemned in the Bible. So that's letter A. What Does the Bible condemn sin or does it condone sin? What's the gospel answer? Well, first of all, no. Clearly, the text of Scripture says no. But then the second part of this is B, the gospel subverts the entire premise Of any form of slavery and here's what I want you to see a little bit of the a little bit of the theology behind this the Bible teaches that 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 the reason a person has value is one of two things there are only two things that make us valuable any measurement you want to use one of those is that we're created in the image of God right and so I'm valuable because I've been created in his image and and because of that I should be treated with respect and honor. And every person should be treated with respect and honor because every person has been created in the image of God. That's what makes you valuable. It's not your education, it's not your skin color. It's not your wealth, it's not your education, it's not your social position, it's not whether you're born or unborn. It's not any of those things. If you're created in the image of God, you're valuable. If for some reason you were not created in the image of God, and every person is, then you would have no value. That's the basis of our value. But then the second thing, I, I want you to see that apart from Christ, apart from Christ, we're all sinners, right? It's, it's not that some are really bad sinners and some are sort of kind of sinners. No, we're all sinners. The Bible says every person is a sinner. The Bible says that we're all separated from God. No one seeks God. No, not one. We're all sinners. And, and because we're all sinners, we, we have a common nature. We have, we have a common hope. Our hope is nothing, nothing. We have no hope. And we have a common destiny that you will live a few years on this earth and you will die and spend eternity separated from God in hell. We're sinners and and we're all the same. And so for somebody to puff himself up and say I'm better than you or or, or I'm above you, no, you're a sinner and I'm a sinner and apart from Christ, we're all sinners. Nobody is above or, or below another person. And then in Christ, we're equal. Why? Because we're equal in Christ. I have boldness to come before the throne of grace. Did you know that? Me and the father, me and the father, we're just like that. I prayed and talked to him this morning. I can come boldly before the throne of grace. I have that kind of access, but I have it not because of who I am, but because of who Jesus is. And if you're a child of of God, if you've been saved by Christ, you have the same access. There's not one person greater than the other. Anything great about me is because of Jesus, right? Anything that somebody might point to, it's because of Jesus. That's the gospel. The gospel says that apart from Christ, we're all equal in that we're equally nothing. And with Christ, we're all equal because we're in Christ. And the gospel says there's no one person more valuable than the other. There's no ever reason biblically for somebody to be uh, mistreated, for somebody to be dishonored, for somebody to be oppressed. Never. The Bible teaches us the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Galatians 3.28 says before the cross, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free, male nor female, since all are one in Christ. In the, in the New Testament time, there were distinct classes. And it's hard for us to wrap our head around this today because you can be born, and that's the American dream. You could be born in any kind of condition in America and it is at least possible for you to rise up through the ranks and be whatever, uh, the president of uh, the country or some, some company or corporation. So you know, there's this mobility, social mobility, that just didn't exist in, in the first century. So you were born in a class, you were born as a certain kind of person, and that never changed. You didn't associate with other people that were different than you, and there was no chance for you to ever be anything other than what you were born to be. With one exception. You know what that was? It was the church. And that's why it was, one of the reasons why it was so revolutionary. If you look at the first two or three centuries, why why people were so suspicious of it. Because in the church, they would come together and people of all different classes, this was so unheard of. To them, all different classes would come together, and they would worship as equals. And it was so weird; it was so odd. It went against everything in those days. That's the power of the gospel. You ever noticed uh, those odd commands in the New Testament? Uh, listen, I've never preached on this one before, but uh, uh, the Bible says four different times to strict command: greet each other. You know the rest of it with a holy kiss. Now, I don't know how we do that in the pandemic. Take your mask off or not. I don't, I don't know. Maybe that'll be our next project. But uh, why did they do that? Well, because when the church would come together, that was their expression of equality and brotherhood. This, is, this was a living picture of the gospel. People that outside, apart from being children of God in the church, one would spit on the other in this society. They would come together in the church, and they'd greet each other with a kiss. That's the gospel. And that's what, that's what happens here. Philemon 16, you can read it again. Uh, no longer is a slave, but more than a slave is a dearly, dearly loved brother. What changed the status for Philemon, for Onesimus, I should say? It was the gospel. It was that now he's no longer a slave, but he is a brother he is a brother. That's what the gospel does. Now let me, that's A and B very quickly. Let me share C. Uh, Does the Bible condone slavery? Listen to this. The gospel, this may surprise you. The gospel has been the primary and some people might suggest the only effective catalyst for the abolition of, of slavery. You know, there's so much guilt literature today and I've heard it even from some very surprising places uh, this guilt literature that points fingers at certain countries and certain groups of people and lays uh, slavery at their feet. Uh, you, you've seen this guilt literature. It's, uh, uh, you, you find it through a lot of our history books today. that says America's terrible. Christians are terrible. And it points to these atrocities that are atrocities and are terrible every time there, there has been one. But I think that sometimes paints a partial picture and leaves out the biggest part of the picture, which I want to, I'm not a historian, but let me share, because I want to show you what the gospel does. I want you to be excited about the gospel. So let me share the rest of the story. So the first thing we would say to that, number one, is let's be clear. Any person, any church, any group, any country that has condoned or participated in chattel or race-based based slavery was wrong and their actions cannot be defended by just saying it was a different time. It's not a different time. That's wrong. It's always been wrong. Always will be wrong. It's wrong. Anytime one person mistreats another person created in the image of God and and robs that person of his liberty without cause, it is sin. Okay. No question. But let's talk about the other part of this. Let's talk about the history of slavery. So before the 18th century, so 1700s, slavery was universal. When you read the history of, uh, well, not just Western civilization, but you just read the history of civilization. Slavery existed from the very, from the very beginning. But if you look at that terrible period of slavery in the 18th century, uh, the European and American slave trade trafficked 11 million Africans. There's no, um, there's no thing that anybody can say about that other than it was wrong. And terrible Uh, but at the same time and this doesn't lessen that but let me give you the rest of the story at the exact same time period uh, the Arabians we would call them the Muslims trafficked from the very same places in Africa 22 million slaves now I'm not saying that to excuse the 11 million it doesn't but if you look at the guilt literature the guilt literature you know, puts this at the foot of of Christianity when when the when the truth is uh, that that doesn't bear historical uh, integrity. And then the worst stories of slavery come from Africa, where Africans enslaved other Africans. Now, let, let me and I hate to quote stuff in a in a sermon. I know people have a hard time following, but let, let me quote something I read this week that I thought was very interesting. Thomas Sowell, who I don't know that he is a, a believer. Uh, African American intellectual. He's still alive, 90 years old. Author, senior fellow at Stanford uh, University's Hoover Institute, uh, considered by many people to be the smartest living historian and social theorist. Wrote three or four dozen books, uh, written extensively on slavery. So I was reading his, uh, some of his book this week, The Thomas Sowell Reader, uh, the chapter titled Twisted History. Let, let me just read, I'm going to read about four or five sentences that he wrote. Of all the tragic facts about the history of slavery, the most astonishing to an American today is that although slavery was a worldwide institution for thousands of years, nowhere in the world was slavery a controversial issue prior to the 18th century. Did did you know that? There have been slaves all through history. It wasn't an issue of contention until the 1700s. He goes on to say, people of every race and color were enslaved and enslaved others. Everybody at some point has been a slave, they're people, and everybody at some point has enslaved others. He, he goes on to say, white people were still being bought and sold as slaves in the Ottoman Empire decades after American blacks were freed. And then my last sentence is this. He says, everyone hated the idea of being a slave, but few had any qualms about enslaving others. So when you were a slave, you were against it, right? But when you had the opportunity to own slaves, nobody was against it. That's the history of the world. So, so, so this has not been a moral issue. I mean, it's a moral issue, but it's not that they're good guys and bad guys. They're just. So he goes on to say slavery was just an issue, was just not an issue. Not even among intellectuals, much less among political leaders, until the 18th century. And then it was an issue only in the Western civilization. Okay, so I'm going somewhere with this. So why was it not an issue until the 18th century in Western civilization? What happened in the 18th century in Western civilization? The gospel happened. Now, the gospel had already happened, of course. But the gospel began to be applied to the idea of slavery during the 1700s, and that's what brought a change. It it started in Europe. In the late 18th century, the Quakers and the Puritans began to question slavery on the basis of the gospel. They said, how could you believe the gospel and then also hold slaves? Uh, in 1785, John Wilberforce met John Newton. Do you know those names? Newton was a former, uh, captain of a slave ship, had heard the gospel, had repented of his sin. He's the person who wrote amazing grace. You know that song, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see that's a, that's the gospel, right? So Wilberforce meets Newton. Newton shares the gospel with Wilberforce. I'm shortening some history a lot. Wilberforce comes to know Christ as his savior. And then he says, based on the gospel, I will fight against slavery. And he he begins a 20 year fight against slavery in England and Europe. And in 20 years, it's gone because of the gospel. Now, what about America? Well, it didn't go away so fast in America. We were more stubborn than that. But when did it go away? Well, it started to go away. And even Benjamin Franklin, who was not a Christian, has attested to this. It began to go away with the first great awakening. That's 1730 to 1755. There was about a 25 year revival in America. Then there were about 20 years where there wasn't a revival. And then there was a 30 year revival in America that we call the second great awakening. And preachers all across America stood up and they preached the gospel. And they said as a part of that, you can't hold slaves. You can't Own another person if you believe in the gospel. And then in 1862, the Emancipation Proclamation was signed. So here's the point. Thousands of years of human history, slavery throughout that, nobody had a problem with it except those who were slaves until the gospel was applied. And in a 100 years, slavery was wiped off the face of the earth. The only places that slavery exists today are places where there is no knowledge of the gospel. It's the gospel that solves the problem. The power of the gospel. That's what we see in Philemon. That's what brought Onesimus to Philemon. And that's what changes our world. Now, very quickly, number two, the second thing the gospel does, this won't take as long. Uh, the gospel reconciles broken relationships. I won't read back through the passage. But, uh, but Philemon and Onesimus, broken relationship. Onesimus leaves because he doesn't like something about Philemon. Philemon, I'm sure, is angry when Onesimus shows back up on his doorstep uh, months or years later, and he has, uh, he has run away, and he has stolen Philemon's property and embarrassed him. But the relationship is reconciled. And what does Paul say? Paul says, Philemon, whatever Onesimus has done to you, charge it to my account. Now, re- really what Paul is saying is, Philemon, I've shared the gospel with you, and you've been forgiven of all kinds of sins. And when you begin to think about Onesimus' sins, what I want you to do is I want you to think about how you've been forgiven by the Lord, how much you've been forgiven, and you just take all of Onesimus' sins, and you just charge them to that account. And when you do, you're going to discover, Philemon, that there's nothing else to be upset about. Sure, Onesimus is sinned against you. Sure, he was wrong. He is as surely wrong as you were wrong when God forgave you. And so based on the gospel, Paul says, Philemon, you and Onesimus, you're brothers in Christ your brothers in Christ. See, that's the power of the gospel. Because of the gospel, there's no reason anybody should be able to hold a grudge. Because of the gospel, there's no reason somebody can stay mad, refuse to forgive, maintain a broken relationship. What Paul is saying is, Philemon, we don't need to discuss... Onesimus' sin against you any more than we need to discuss your sin against the Father. We set one aside. Based on that, we can set the other aside. If you are at odds with somebody, whether it's somebody in your family, somebody in the church, the community, somebody at work, if you're at odds with somebody, if you are a gospel person, listen, you've got to set that aside. Just like you can't be a gospel person and a slaveholder, you also can't be a gospel person and be angry at somebody. They may have sinned. They may have done you wrong. There may be no question. I'm not saying they're innocent. I'm saying they're no more guilty than you are. And God has forgiven you and God has forgiven me. We can forgive the other person. Paul says, Philemon, don't even think about holding it against Onesimus. Because we're not holding against you. And then I love what Paul says right here at the end. It's a little bit of a twisting of the knife. But uh, Paul says, and and get a bedroom ready because I'm going to come see you. (laughs) Philemon, you better think about this because if you want to hold it against him, I'm going to be there soon. We're going to talk about who needs to hold whose sin against whom. Listen, we need to, if you're angry at somebody, we don't need to talk about what they've done to you. Any more than we need to talk about what you've done to God, it's just time to let the gospel heal the relationship. One last thing. The gospel begins with God's pursuit. And so, I don't know if you, uh, well, I just want you to think about the odds. Think about the odds. Onesimus is living in Colossae. He is a, he is a slave. There's some problem between he and Philemon, so He escapes. And so he's got to get out of town as fast as he can, right? Because he's going to get arrested, and so he's got, to, he's got to flee. And so he's in western Turkey. He could go anywhere. He could go down to Israel. He could go to Egypt. He could go to Greece, what we call Greece today. He could go to Spain. He could he, I mean, go north, south, east, or west. He decides, Onesimus decides, I think I'll go to Rome. I think I'll go to Rome. Well, it's a long ways, long ways from Colossae to Rome. And it's a complicated journey because, first of all, you you can only get there by boat. There's no way to, well, it would be very difficult to get there on foot. And so he's going to have to get on a ship to get from Colossae to Rome. And so the first problem is Colossae is not a seaport. So he's got to get to a seaport somehow. And then he gets to the seaport, there's ships going everywhere. But he picks the one going to Rome. And so that ship would have had to make a dozen stops between when it left and when it arrived near Rome. Because it's a long journey. It would have taken a half a year to get there. And at every port, he could have gotten off and gone wherever he wanted to go. But he didn't. He stays on until he gets near Rome. The problem is Rome is also not on the coast. So he gets off the ship and he has to journey across the land again. And he finally gets to the city of Rome. So he's in Rome, that's one of the largest cities in the world at that time, one of the most populated cities. What's he gonna do? He needs a job. There are all kinds of different jobs he can get. What job does he get? He becomes a jail warden. Okay, now he's a jail warden in Rome. Rome's the capital city. There are thousands of, of prisoners in Rome. So what prisoner does he get assigned to? Paul. So he goes in with Paul, Paul shares the gospel, he prays to receive Christ. He says, listen, I know a Christian on the other side of the world. His name is Philemon. You'd never have heard of him. And Paul says, you know what? That's my best friend. Now, what what are the odds of that happening? In the providence of God, the odds are 100%. You see, God orchestrates our lives. God arranged thousands of, of details. To take this poor slave from Colossae all the way to Rome, sitting next to the Apostle Paul, so that he could come to know Jesus. Look, look, I I know we're out of time, but i I just got to show you this. Look look back at verse 10. Appeal to you, my son Onesimus. I became his father while I was in chains. So Onesimus ends up in the prison, not as a prisoner. but And then look over to verse 15. For perhaps, this is what Paul says, I guess funny. For perhaps this is why he was separated from you for a brief time. Paul says, Philemon, yet you think about it, maybe the whole reason he escaped is so he could come here and I could share the gospel with him. Here's what we learn from this: God pursues us. That's how much he loves us and cares for us. That is the gospel, right? Not that you find God, but that God finds you. And God had reached down into this poor, sinful, rebellious, criminal slave. And God, with all the people living on the earth, reached down, found him, orchestrated the whole world so that that man would travel 1,200 miles and end up sitting next to the apostle Paul where he could hear the gospel and then be sent right back to reconcile to the man that he had sinned against. So God still does that, right? And maybe God, I don't want to be overly dramatic, but this is just Bible truth. Maybe God has brought you here today to hear this message at this time from this bald headed preacher that today, who knows the events in your lives that have been orchestrated for today for you to follow Christ not for you to think about it till next week, not for you to ponder it for another, but so that today you can follow Christ. I want to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes for just a moment. And we don't, we don't ordinarily do this. This isn't something we do every week, but I, I want to do this right now. If you don't know Christ as your Savior if there's never been a time in your life when you've understood you're guilty of sin and that your only hope is Jesus and you've called out to Jesus once and for all to forgive you of your sins, you've turned from your sins and embraced him. If that's never happened in your life and you'd like for that today to be your reality, I'm not gonna call on you. Nobody's gonna point you out. I just wanna be able to pray for you. Would you just slip your hand up in the air and then put it back down? Today. Pastor, just pray for me today. Today. Father in heaven, I believe you orchestrate every event of our lives because you love us. And you have a design for us to come to you. And I pray that we will respond as you have led us today. And those that, who, whose heart you're working in most right now, I pray that they'll have the, the boldness, the courage to come. And we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.